few weeks ago, uh, Eric Youngblood, Pastor Eric, sent around a, uh, an email to, to a few people. If you aren't on it, don't feel real bad. It just means you're not elite like me. It's all right. Uncomfortable squirms. Um, now, I'm sure that you get some of those at certain times, just these random thoughts that uh, Eric will send out, and uh, he doesn't really put much thought into it. He, sends, he just kind of blasts out, here, I thought you might like this. And, uh, and, and the article that he sent me a few weeks ago was about this basketball player named Shane Battier, who plays in the NBA. And the, uh, the, the article was entitled, The No Stats All-Star. Shane Battier uh, was this great kind of high school phenom. He went to Duke, and they won a national championship and beat North Carolina a lot of times that year, Catherine. Um, but, and, and other teams, that matter less. Uh, but, and, uh, and he came out of uh, Duke, won a national championship, and, and uh, went into the NBA, sixth draft pick overall that year. Uh, and... Um, and Shane Battier quickly realized that he's not going to be the most athletic guy on the court, uh, the fastest. And, and so he had to adapt his game. And what he ended up doing has, been, has kind of uh, puzzled people for a long time. You see, n- nobody in here owns a Shane Battier jersey. Like, nobody cares. Shane Battier does not have uh, what are the, the classical statistical categories. He's not any good at those, scoring uh, points. He doesn't get many rebounds, uh, blocked shots, steals, assists. Those aren't the things that he does really well. But somehow, his, uh, somehow, his teams end up uh, end up winning. He has what uh, what one writer called a magical ability to help his team win. And what he does is, you know, if he's going up for a rebound and he finds that he's not going to get a clear grab on the ball, like probably he'll fumble it or probably he will, instead of grabbing the rebound for himself, he'll tip it to a teammate. That teammate gets the statistic of the rebound and he gets nothing, but his team gets the ball back. You know, and, and in a sport, when you're, that's your livelihood, those statistics often equal dollar signs. Um, they certainly equal respect and admiration, and they equal sponsorships and all these things. But Shane Battier is not, uh, not a player who plays like that. Most, uh, you'll hear uh, the all-stars that he guards each and every night. You'll hear them say things like, I just had an off night, or I just wasn't playing my best, because they don't think much of Shane Battier. He's not that imposing of a presence. But he, he plays hard the whole time. He plays hard defense, and he, and he doesn't score a lot of points on offense. So he, he takes his hard work on defense, the no-glory places, where he gets to know his opponent, forces them into weak spots uh, where they're not as effective. And, but nobody really knows what's happening. Nobody really gives him any respect. Our passage today is about laying down our right to respect. Our, our, it's about laying down our rights and the privileges we believe we can demand. Privileges from our position, just as Shane Battier lays down the privileges of being an NBA player for the sake of others. Philippians is really, it is a book about encountering suffering. Paul is writing this book from prison. He's in prison, for the, as he says, for the sake of the gospel, for Christ's sake. He's, uh, he's thrown into prison because he's proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. And so in his day and age, um, you can't proclaim that because 
everybody already knows who's Lord, and that's Caesar. So for, Jesus, for Paul to proclaim Jesus is Lord, it must mean that Caesar is not Lord, and so he's thrown into prison. He's writing from prison. He's writing to a church that looks that, that things are going fairly well, but they're, they're experiencing persecutions. They're experiencing false teaching. They're experiencing some divisions. And Paul is concerned that these sufferings don't derail their faith. He's concerned about that. And so he says, he, uh, he gives them two major tools to encounter suffering. The first one was, uh, was last week. He says they need a purpose. He says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, for the purpose of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He gives them purpose in their suffering, which I don't have to talk about because that was in chapter 1. But he goes on in chapter 2, and it's in the same vein. He's carrying on. He's saying, We're, you're going to suffer for the gospel. And now, as Andrew recited, as Andrew recited, suffer together. Be of one accord. Don't think of your own interests, but think of the interests of others. Don't consider yourself, but consider others. So Paul gives us the second of his tools against suffering, or through suffering. So we're going to talk about today selfless suffering, how to do it, and finally the advantages of a selfless society. Selfless suffering, how to do it, and the advantages of the selfless society. Paul is concerned that this suffering will undo the Philippians and their mission. And he knows the only way that they can stay united, that they can, excuse me, that they can stay purposeful in what they're doing is if they unite in their mission. For Christ's sake, to see the life of heaven infused into this world. He has, to, he has to take this tact because people, as a rule, humans, turn inward in their suffering. As a rule, people, you're going to turn in towards yourself. When I was in high school, um, my basketball coach used to, you know, we'd go through all of practice and work real hard, and then at the end, you got to do sprints um, for conditioning. So we're doing sprints, and he used to make us yell encouragements to other teammates during our sprints. He would say, do you think that you are more tired than anybody else? Are you really that selfish? Do you think that your pain matters more than theirs? That will destroy our team. You have to yell. So we're sitting there like, go, just go, guys. I mean, it was completely weak. It was an awful attempt. It's hard to yell when you're tired, right? That's breath that you want to save for the running so that it doesn't hurt so much. But he made us yell to each other. When we're tired, like that, we naturally want to conserve. We naturally want to pull in and preserve ourselves. But Paul is saying, in this suffering, turn outward. In this suffering, you have to turn to others. Self-interest is what most readily emerges from our hearts. You see, a, a thoughtful person, schooled in the ways of the world, would, ha- would take issue with this. They would say, wait, wait, selfishness is an adaptive behavior. If we came from 
some other species before us. And, and the only reason that you and I are here is because our ancestors were selfish enough to, to do everything it took to pass on their genetic material, a.k.a. have babies. That was a selfish move. They wanted to, their lineage to survive. And so you and I are here because of that selfishness. So selfishness is actually good, and it just needs to be harnessed. Right? That would be kind of the, uh, the, the worldly or the liberal mindset. But I would contend that a mission, mission will fail for lack of selflessness, or a mission will be sabotaged by a self-centered stance. There's a new movie that came out. It just came out of theaters, which means that means I'll get a chance to see it. Uh, and it's called Black Sea. It stars Jude Law. It's supposed to be really good, and I have not seen it yet. But the premise is that there is this sunken treasure at the bottom of the Black Sea. It's this Nazi gold. And there are, there are these guys who found out, find out about it, and they're submarine. They're part of a submarine crew. And so what they do is they, they go around, they recruit people from all over to get this, um, to, uh, to, to assemble a crew for a submarine, and then they take a submarine down to go recover this millions and millions of dollars in gold at the bottom of the Black Sea. And their plan is that when, when we recover this, we will divide all of the money equally among every part. But what happens? They start to realize the fewer crew members there are, the bigger my part becomes. You know, and so danger ensues and violence. And before long, they're, uh, they're killing off other members of the crew and eventually becoming, getting pretty close to members of the crew who are vitally important to making it back to the place where there's oxygen above the water. They're sabotaging their own mission out of greed. Our selfishness, our selfishness can't be harnessed in that way. It just goes out of control. But you know, we religious people aren't too different in the way we view selfishness. Just look at the way, if you want to, if you want some proof, look at the way we talk to uh, teenagers or single people about sex. What do we say to them? First of all, it's good, right? You should wait until your marriage, until, until you're married. As, as Eric says, we're very stingy with our bodies, preserving them only. We're generous in every other area of life, very stingy with our bodies, preserving them only for our spouse. So we said... You should wait. And what do we give them? We say, you have this, this, this lust, this desire. What are we going to put in the ring to fight against that? What are we going to put to fight against that lust and desire? We say to them, wait now, because when you get married, then it will be... You can finish that. <laughs> He said awkward, for those of you who couldn't hear. I'm not even going there. You've derailed God's word, Dave. We tell them to fight your lust by remembering that when you get married, it will be great. If you wait now, if you put off what you want now, when you get married... Sex will be wonderful. It'll be worth the wait. It'll be awesome. It'll be everything you could have wanted. We put, against lust, we put selfishness. 
So even if they do make it, which is great, and they should wait, even if these folks, they're going to be a pretty cruddy spouse because they're going into marriage thinking this is about me and my enjoyment and my pleasure and my fulfillment. See, we religious people do that too. We try and harness selfishness. But just like a marriage that's built on me finding, uh, me finding pleasure in my relationship is going to crumble. It's going to crumble as surely as a submarine filled with greedy, gold-loving crew members. So, so if you can't harness selfishness, if it's true that selfishness and self-centeredness and pride and thinking of me first has to be expelled for the sake of others and for the sake of this mission, this purpose that Paul has given us to live for the sake of Christ, how do you do it? How do you go about that? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who many of you are familiar with, is a, uh, was a, a pastor, theologian, and spy. There's a book by that name. Um, he's a pastor who, thought, who did a lot of thinking about community, and he has seven points for Christians to live in selfless community. And I will now go through all of them in painstaking detail. No, uh, I'll read them quickly because they're worth, uh, they may stick with you for a little while, while and you may have to think about it later. Um, but I'll focus on one or two of them. He says this, Bonhoeffer's seven steps, that believers should hold their tongues, refusing to speak uncharitably about a Christian brother or sister. That believers should cultivate humility to realize that they are the greatest of sinners and can only live in God's sight by his grace. Christians, in order to live selflessly, need to listen long and patiently so they'll understand their fellow Christians' need. Number four, they need to refuse to consider their time and calling so valuable that they cannot be interrupted to help with unexpected needs, no matter how small or menial. That one's tough. Number five, they need to bear the burden of their brothers and sisters, preserving their freedom and forgiving them. Number six, they need to declare God's word to fellow believers when they need to hear it. And finally, seven, they need to understand that Christian authority is characterized by service and does not call attention to the person who performs the service. A lot there. The one I want to focus on is when he says, refuse to consider, Christians should refuse to consider their time and calling so valuable that they can't be stopped to help with unexpected needs. This gets right down to it. Don't I, do I ever have the right to, to, to my time? Do I ever have the right to use my time in the way I want and to not stop for someone who needs it? Don't I get to claim the privileges like when I'm here and I came the other day and that light was left on and, the, and, and I came to the bathroom, I was going up to the office, but I had sermon prep to do. I'm the preacher. I don't turn off lights. I got important things to do. Other people can turn off lights. I didn't turn it off, by the way. Poor Sarah and Luke. Sorry. Uh, I thought I was better than you. Um, is there a time for that, or, or do, we, do we get to do that? In C.S. Lewis's uh, little book called The Screwtape Letters, 
Um, it's, a, it's a book of a senior demon advising a junior demon on how to best kind of ensnare and rob joy uh, from his patient and keep him away from Christ. He says this to him. The senior demon says to the junior, My dear Wormwood, now you will have noticed that nothing throws your patient into a passion so easily as to find a tract of time which he reckoned on having at his own disposal unexpectedly taken from him. These things anger him because he regards his time as his own and feels that it is being stolen. You must therefore zealously guard in his mind the curious assumption, my time is my own. You have here a delicate task. The assumption which you want him to go on making is so absurd that if once it is questioned, even we cannot find a shred of argument in its defense. The man can neither make nor retain one moment of time. It all comes to him by pure gift. He might as well regard the sun and moon as his. It doesn't stand up to scrutiny that I can't turn off a light. That my time is mine. But why is it seemingly so impossible to disadvantage myself to the advantage of another? Why is it so difficult to, to lose my time and my reputation and my opportunities just to advantage, to help someone else? I think the question we need to ask ourselves and you need to ask yourself is what, what are you afraid of losing? When you give up that time or that money or that energy or that emotion... What are you afraid of losing forever that you're never going to get back? Is it reputation or financial advancement? What if your friend wins the girl and you don't? What if you lose the opportunity to get your way? If you lose the chance to have a break in your day or in your week? These type of fears betray a sense of my existence that I am utterly alone and that all I can ever attain is right in front of me that the things of this life are right here for the taking and if I don't take them I won't have them and if I lose them once they are gone forever and no one will get them back for me it's a lonely and claustrophobic way to live to say our lives can be reduced to something so small as, as, a, uh, as, as getting a break in our week and we end up demanding that and refusing to lose ourselves for the sake of another. It's like trying to catch a thunderstorm and a thimble. It's, it's all of life and we're trying to get it in this little bitty thing. It's ridiculous and it's too small. Our lives are much bigger than that. The only liberation from a lonely and claustrophobic life is to know the advantages of the selfless society. So we talked about selfless suffering, how to do it, and now the advantages of the selfless society. The advantages of the selfless society um, only exist in one place ever, and that is within the Trinity. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the only society where 
Each is looking out for the other continually. Each is considering the other continually and perfectly. Each is happy for the other's advancement and glory. But we serve a God who gave that up. We serve a God who gave up that advantage of deity. In our, in our passage, Paul says um, that we can have this mind of unity among us, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he, is in the very nature, though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's a difficult thing to translate. Here's how Eugene Peterson does it in his paraphrase, The Message. He says, Jesus had equal status with God, but he didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, becoming human. One commenter says it a different way. He says, Jesus refused to make a selfish choice with his divinity. You see, he had advantages in being in the only selfless society. This was never a society that was going to forfeit the mission due to greed, like a, sub, like a submarine full of greedy men. He had the advantages of a selfless society, and he laid them down. He gave them over. He did not consider them a thing to be grasped. But to the, the, that statement is absolutely enormous. And I... I think I can, I can get to it just, just a little bit by, by saying this. I don't think I ever lay aside a potential advantage of my situation. If I think that I can get better service at a restaurant by acting like a blue blood rich person, then I'll change the appearance of my situation and be that. But if I'm at you know, a meet and three in the small town, and I think that waitress will give me some extra banana cream pie at the end, then I will act like a good old boy. I will, I change my situation, my, my position to gain the most advantage, and Christ gave up his position and all of the advantages it held. He did not consider them a thing to be grasped. He became obedient even to death, and Paul goes on to say, even death on a cross. Now at this point, I know that we know what the cross is. In the society of that time, in Roman society, the cross, in, 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 in Latin, crux, <coughs> was a four-letter word. It wasn't, it wasn't stated in polite society. In, in legal terms, if someone was sentenced to the cross, they used legalese to work around saying the word cross because it was that rude and offensive. So when Paul in other places says that it is the offense of the cross, the shame of the cross, we start to know a little bit what he means by that, that he became obedient to death. And not only that, but death on a cross. This would be similar, I believe, in our time, saying and he became like he became called a sex offender somebody that you and i feel completely justified in avoiding and shunning and considering ourselves better than that's how offensive the cross was 
So he, not only did he not grasp his advantages of his position as deity, but he became obedient to death, even being called a sex offender. That is the shame of the cross. But the passage goes on to say that he has been exalted over all, that, that he, has, he has been given the name above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see this pattern that Paul lays out in his life, Jesus is part of the, as, as a member of the Trinity, to death, even death on a cross, to life plus he has been given the name above every name. Now, here's our question. Is Paul telling us and saying this, is he giving us an example or is he relating an accomplishment? Is he telling us you need to be like that? You need to, just like Jesus, what's that, uh, what would Jesus do, WWJD? You know, he would die on the cross for the sins of everyone. That's probably what I need to do. He, just kidding. Um, is he giving us an example to follow or is he saying this has been accomplished? There's a lot of debate among scholars about the purpose here. But I don't think it needs to be that complicated. I believe he's doing both. Yes, he's saying that our lives need to be live um, in this pattern of life to death to life plus um, having privileges and advantages and giving them over for the welfare of another, for disadvantaging ourselves for the advantage of another that will lead to our death in a sense. Knowing that there will be a resurrection, knowing that there will be exaltation at the end of it. But it's also an accomplishment. It is something that Christ has given to you. This is the one who calls us to live in unity. And he's the one who gave up the fellowship of the Spirit so that you and I could have the participation in the Spirit that Paul talks about here. On the cross, Christ saw all of his friends abandon him so that you and I could be of one accord with our brothers and sisters. He experienced separation from his Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you can know the safety of always being cared for. He laid down the advantages he had in order to advantage you and me. We have someone looking out for our rights so we can lay ours down. We've been given what we don't deserve. So what's our response to that? In a powerful film entitled, cleverly, Taken Two, (laughs) Liam Neeson, one of Eric Youngblood's favorite actors, laughably, does what he does best And he gets the bad guys. Because in Taken 1, he killed a lot of bad guys. And in Taken 2, the families of those bad guys need to get Liam Neeson. That's our plot. (laughs) It's awesome. So Liam Neeson does, you know, uh, the the bad guys take his daughter and his wife, and, and and then they escape, and he rescues them both, of course, and he works his way through the bad guys, enacting justice on each of them as he comes upon them until he gets to the last big boss who is of course an Eastern European 
because those are the only bad guys Hollywood knows. <laughs> and he says to him, they're there. He, he, Liam Neeson, he's got the gun in his hand. He's standing across from the guy. He's terrified. He's kind of cowering. And he says to him, Liam Neeson says to the bad guy, listen, if I kill you, your family, you have two more sons. They're going to come after me, aren't they? And the guy says, yes. <laughs> and Liam Neeson says, if I let you go, if I, if I end this right now, if I stop this cycle of violence, will you walk away? I could kill you right now, but if I don't, if I walk away, will you walk away? And the bad guy says, yes. Liam <laughs> Neeson sets down his gun, kind of backing away. You see him turn to walk away, and you watch him Liam Neeson's back, and the next thing you hear is, cock. The bad guy grabs the gun. It's an outrage. Are you kidding me? What just happened? It was in your face. You could, all you had to do was pull up that. That's all. That was your life right there. And he didn't. He didn't do it. Are you kidding? And then you, you go and you get there. I'm not going to tell you the end because you've got to see this movie. <laughs> that dude acted completely out of accord with the way he was treated, and it infuriated me. Right? That is, that is awful. And that's just the way it is with us. Like, we have no other choice but to act in accord with the way that we've been treated. We have a God who laid down his rights in order to serve and to save his people in this world that he loves. He laid them down. What can you do but lay down your rights? What can you do but, but consider others more important than yourself? You know, this is, this is unique to Christianity. In every other religion, the righteous are saved and the wicked destroyed. But in Christianity, we serve a God who saved the wicked by destroying the righteous. The righteous one, Jesus Christ, was destroyed that you could be saved. We can't do anything but act and live and love in accord with that. Be of one accord. Be of one accord and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Shane Battier, the No Stats All-Star. He doesn't do anything flashy. Nobody likes him. Nobody talks about him. Nobody wears his jersey. He says only old people and little girls wear his jersey. He's got no, uh, sorry, no, no, no offense, Sandy. Um, he's the oldest guy here. Um, Nobody cares much about him because he does the things that nobody cares about. He was drafted to the Grizzlies right out of college, and within three years they went from before he was there they were thirty four and uh, excuse me twenty three and fifty nine, which is really bad. Wins come first in these records, okay? <laughs> Low number twenty three, high number fifty nine, really bad. And then two years later, after he was there, they went to 50 and 32, and they made the playoffs for the first time in franchise history. That's only the top 16 teams in the league go to the playoffs. He was then traded to the Rockets, who were 34 and 48 the year before he came. And within two years, 
they were 55 and 27. They, they uh, in that year, claimed the second longest win streak in NBA history at the time with 22 wins. Finally in his career, he's traded to the Miami Heat, who, uh, who topped that win streak with 27 wins, again, the second longest in NBA history, um, and eventually won three league championships with the Heat. Shane Battier puts down his rights to money, to sponsorships, to fame, to acclaim for the sake of the mission, for the sake of his team. Selfishness would destroy that mission, but selflessness propels it. Now you and I live in keeping with Christ Jesus by doing the same. Amen.